let's start with prayer. All right, Father, would you come into the room right now and just lead, lead us, guide us, give us revelation, give us wisdom, give us your encouragement, convict us of sin. Lord, would you unlock the truth of your word because your spirit is here, ready, waiting, and willing. We submit to you in Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been hurt by someone? <laughs> of course you have. It's a human condition. If you're a human, you will be hurt. Being hurt by someone is part of our experience as we grow up, as we encounter the world, as we deal with the challenges of our own family and, and friends. If you think about the times you've been hurt, maybe it's a business partner, you know, who stole from you, or it's a, it's a, a boss who was really cruel to you or actually fired you when he thought you were the, the real problem. Maybe, maybe it was a coach, a coach who cut you when you deserved to make the team. It's amazing how many people, years and years ago, they still have that coach right in there. <laughs> they still feel the pain of being cut. There's something that happens to us when we get, get, get hurt. And, and a lot of times, your hurt can come through all kinds of sources. It can come through verbal abuse. It can come through physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. It can even come through spiritual abuse. There are scenarios that are too difficult for us to paint a picture of it even here this morning that, that have happened all around us and may have happened to you. You've lived through them. If I could draw your attention to last fall, last fall, the entertainment industry, the government, sports, culture as a whole went through a seismic shift in our, what was happening. Our attention was focused. Most of you have heard of the name Harvey Weinstein, but he was exposed as a serial violator of women an entertainment mogul, pretty much in charge of Hollywood. And he's been accused now by more than 50 women of sexual abuse, of payouts, of secrets, of cover-ups. It was this story that actually catapulted the Me Too movement into the spotlight, a movement where women are saying, you're not alone and this is not okay. You're not alone, and this is not okay. These words have echoed throughout our culture over the last several months. And they've shaken the lives. They've, they've really taken people's careers down. It has been incredible to watch what has happened as what was secretive suddenly spilled out into the public. And how awful and violating that it appears to have been with no one or very few ab even able to speak out against it. But it's been an, uh, an, an onslaught of voices that have started to rise in our culture. As of uh, somewhere in December, 
97 men and one woman have been exposed by this Me Too movement. And if you've been watching the news, you know that the latest headlines are Dr. Larry Nasser, USA Gymnastics doctor, who sexually abused nearly 200 girls. And for the last several weeks, we've seen each of these brave victims stand in the courtroom and one after another telling their story and how significant that is for us all to watch and to see it happening. They're demanding justice and they should have it. See, if you've been wronged, no matter what it is, mistreated, hurt, abused, these are, these are all violations of our own hearts. And our reaction is, for every one of us is we want and I think need justice. We want the other person to pay. And the reality is that person often needs to make restitution. But it's a slippery slope, isn't it? The struggle. There's another side to this. Because what if you're the one who has the secret? If you're the one who has done something that you're so incredibly ashamed of, when you've done something wrong, when, you, when you've wished that time travel could be invented so that you could go back and not do something, stop yourself from making the very worst mistake of your life that would ruin your life. When you have a secret sin that's in your life, there's something entirely different that begins to come up within your soul, and it is you want mercy. You want forgiveness. See, these are the things in our culture right now that are very difficult to talk about. These are not easy subjects. We're seeing it played out in the headlines. We're seeing it every single day. And so on one side, we want and demand and need justice. And on the other side, we, when we're guilty, want and need mercy. You see how complicated it is? Did you know that God is a God of perfect justice and perfect mercy? Well, that seems totally contradictory. He's got to be good at one or the other. He can't be good at both. But he is. And I, I think we as his people have to represent him in a culture that is so broken apart that we have to get in touch with what those two things look like. Because indeed, we're going to have to participate with him in both of those realms. To stand up for justice to those who are victimized, for those who are victimized. And to beg for mercy for even those who we know and love who ruin their own souls. So the question becomes, how can we, how can this be possible? How can we do it? Because our lives, and as we've seen recently, our careers, our families, our very souls are in the balance of this question. 
They're hanging in the balance. And I want you to know, One Chapel, I have a deep longing as I've watched these stories played out. I, I, I watched as research those young women standing up in that courtroom and telling their story and how painful it was. And uh, even now as I'm thinking about it, I can't help but be emotional about it because it's so, it's so awful, it's so violating. That the, that the things that go on in our culture are so tragic. And so since the beginning of the year, I've just like been so hungry through 21 days of prayer, uh, thirsty for a renewal of God's spirit in me to see the world the way he sees it. And in my family and in our church together, the churches of one chapel to remove the things that are in the way of whatever God wants to do in us and through us, in our city, to see a spiritual awakening, a reawakening within even maybe our nation. Could that happen? Of course it can. Of course it can happen, but there are so many things in the way. And so... As we've been talking about this, I've been praying about this, we certainly are in need of this kind of thing. And so we, we've decided to embark on a journey through the book of Romans as a way to deal with this tension, a way to deal with the subject matter of the, the violation and the justice that is required and the, and the secret lives, lives of people that are so full of shame that they can't, even, they can't even understand that they could receive mercy. That God has used this very book of Romans, this letter written from the Apostle Paul over many years, over the past 2,000 years, really as a, a, a vehicle to spiritually renew and personally refresh and help people remove the things that are in the way of what God wanted to do. If you think about this book's influence, you think of John Calvin, one of the reformers in the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. He wrote this about the book of Romans. If a man understands Romans, he has a sure road open to help him understand the entire Bible. It's so true. The, the basic handbook for Christianity is sort of found in the book of Romans, Richard Halbertson described the book of Romans this way. In a very basic sense, Western civilization is a byproduct of Paul's letter to the Romans. Nothing was written by a man that had greater impact on modern history. That's pretty, that's pretty profound. Think about that statement. Because history actually verifies the impact of what is in the book of Romans. And what, what impact it's had throughout history. Because the book has literally changed human history. If you think about Augustine, the, the brilliant church father, great theologian, he became a Christian essentially because of the book of Romans. Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation in 1517 because of the discovery, the revelation in the book of Romans. John Wesley started the Wesleyan revivals in 1738 because of the book of Romans. A great Swiss Bible commentator that none of you want to know his name is every great, <laughs> just, I didn't list his name, every great revival in history that ever started can somehow be related to this book. 
every great revival in history can be, is, can be traced back somehow related to this book. And so my prayer is that God will use this study of Romans in your life and my life and in our church and that we'll embark on a journey towards Easter. Over the next seven or eight weeks, we're going to, we're going to look at the book of Romans, then even post-Easter, we're going to dive back into it. Because time and time again, over and over again, a generation after generation has discovered what is in these pages. A shift for people who are trapped in their sinfulness. A shift for people who are spiritually stuck. A shift for people who feel angry and frustrated at the world around them. A shift for people who are wounded and hurting and need justice. I think we need a revival of our own hearts. So I want to encourage you to read the book with me. We're going to do one chapter every Sunday, and it's going to be challenging. We'll have to drill down into the theme of the chapter because it's so dense. There's so much good stuff there. But this morning, we're going to start in Romans chapter 1, and we're going to start in that verse 1, and we're just going to read through several verses here before we stop. Um, Read through the whole chapter, and I'm going to comment on some of it. And so uh, Romans 1 Verse 1 says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. He is called an apostle, which means the ones who are sent out, the sent out ones. And he says, I'm the sent out one, set apart for the gospel, which means good news, the good news of God. And it's interesting because this is not a normal greeting in this letter to the Roman church. When you scroll down to verse 7, or you look down at verse 7, it really could be this is the the second part of the greeting. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And then verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's typical greeting, but he stuffs a bunch of other stuff in here for a reason. He wants to talk about something because he wants to begin to aim at the church that lives in one of the most epic cities, one of the most influential cities on the planet at that time. And you have to see that he was writing to a little group of Christians, probably, you can't imagine Rome as it is now, the Vatican and St. Peter's Cathedral, you can't, you can't, the Basilica, all that stuff, you can't, you, you can't imagine it as, as, it, as that because that didn't come to later. What you can imagine is from Romans 16, we see little groups of believers sharing fellowship, communion, bread, praying together. And they are, they are probably around 100 people in a city of maybe a, a, a million people. And so there's this little group of people that have taken hold and he wants to say something to them. He says in verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You can't hardly read it without preaching. It's such a... Verse 5 says, through him we receive grace and apostleship. In other words, he's saying, I've received the call to be sent, and so have you, to call all the Gentiles 
to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. He's writing likely to Jewish Christians who came out of the, this, this little sect that came out of the Jewish faith because they believed that Jesus was truly the Messiah. And in the, the, the mindset of the Jewish world, it was the Jews and everyone else. And so the Gentiles, so he's speaking to these, these folks right here, and he's saying something to them about who Jesus is. He says, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you who are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ and to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from our Lord, our God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that Paul begins to de define Jesus as a person who has more authority and more power than the very Caesar who lives in the city where they dwell. And he begins to kind of open up this idea because the Caesar would have been called, they, they called themselves the Son of God. They referred to themselves as Lord and Savior. Paul knows what he's doing here. He's, he's poking at something. He's poking at a way of looking at life. He's trying to lift the eyes of these Christians, these believers. And so he continues on in verse 8. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness, how I constantly remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. He's hearing about them because Rome is the center of all the roads that were built. It was pretty easy to travel in these days. And so he's heard the stories. He knows some of these people, even though he did not found the church. That's credited to Peter. He knows some of them because of friends that he met in Corinth, most likely. And so he's saying, I want to come to you. Verse 11, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He doesn't want to be too presumptuous since he didn't found the church. He just wants to say, I'm anxious to meet you and, and see some of you that I haven't seen in a long time. And I think we can mutually benefit from our time together he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other giant Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, of the good news, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. There's 10 sermons in those verses. I won't take time to give them to you now. 
I just want you to see that Paul is starting to aim for where he's headed. I just want you to see that he points to Jesus Christ as the true Lord and Savior of the world. And that he can point back a thousand generations farther than any Caesar could to King David as his lineage. He's doing something. He's, he's, he's piercing the ideas of this Roman culture. And you think about the Jewish Christians who might be sitting beside practicing Jews who have not embraced the Messiah in some of those small groupings. The Caesar, just before the one in charge during this letter, he kicked out all the Jews about eight years earlier than this letter was written. And then Nero came to power and he lets them all back in. It's a well-known fact that Romans do not appreciate Jews. That's an understatement. They do not like them. There is social hostility and unrest. Rome is a cosmopolitan place. There are people who believe all kinds of things and who attach themselves to all kinds of groupings of people. And so you can find, you can see that there's tension even as he begins this letter. Because he's going to dig down to some things that are hard to take as it unfolds. In many ways, it would be similar to the culture we now live in, which is so on the edge of hostility with one wrong word, with one misplaced sentence, with, a, with the, the, the blindness that is in some people and the, and the uh, over-sensitivity in others. It's just we're on the verge of hostility all the time. Paul writes to this group of people who are embroiled in that. So let's jump to verse 18, where Paul goes into the deep end of social and theological controversy. <laughs> Here it is, verse 18. You can follow along with me. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts and to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Paul feels inclined to include. <laughs> Amen. Verse 26, because of this God, they gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men, who also, uh, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over 
to a depraved mind. I just want you to underline that phrase, he gave them over. We're going to visit that in just a moment. To do what ought not to be done. They, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. I love that that's in that list. <laughs> this is a bad list. This is a bad list that disobey their parents is in there. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. The Apostle Paul is writing in this section in a way that kind of lays out a scene. It's a courtroom scene. I want you to see the courtroom and the case in this courtroom is mankind's guilt or innocence. And Paul begins to, begins to paint a picture here. The charge is that mankind has deliberately rejected God. The charge is that mankind has deliberately rejected God. Is that on your... He, I think you have that. There it is. The, car, the charge is that mankind has deliberately rejected God. Not accidentally, but deliberately. The prosecutor is the Apostle Paul. The accused is all of humanity. The defense. The defense. <laughs> Actually, the Paul, Paul, Apostle Paul says in verse 20 that mankind is without excuse, which is really unfortunate. There is, there is no defense. And the verdict, well, we'll kind of get to that in a few moments. The verdict is guilt. Guilty. The Apostle Paul begins now to lay out the evidence for this verdict. And it doesn't really make sense as you go through the book of Romans unless you see that how he's doing this. He's, he's arguing a case and he'll argue both sides of the case throughout the book of Romans. You'll see him arguing different points of view and you have to see that there's an argument, that there is tension here. There are relatively few easy answers. That's what we want. We kind of want everything to be tied up in a little bow. We're so addicted to sitcoms. 22 and a half minutes and every conflict is resolved. We want our conflicts to be resolved. We want everything to work out just really well. We get to an end of a two-hour movie, and we, oh. Just want everything to be fixed. Paul is going to talk about the tension, and he starts with this idea. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, Paul starts out talking about the wrath of God. And some of you, when you think about the wrath of God, what do you think of? You probably see it as a lightning bolt from heaven. The wrath of God thrown down lightning. That's not God, by the way. That's Zeus. Zeus is the one with the lightning bolt. You think of, when you think of the wrath of God, you're thinking of a guy getting fried right there on the spot. It's hellfire, brimstone, Sodom and Gomorrah, judgment day, hell right here on earth. 
The reality is, that's not what God's talking about right here. That's not what Paul is describing right here. Paul is describing something different because in verse 18, he says the wrath of God is being revealed. He uses the present tense. He says it's, it's already here. It's happening right now. I mean, now obviously, th- I mean, here we are having church in a beautiful commercial office building. There's no fire and brimstone outside yet, right? Nothing, it's just rain, which we need. Uh, there's, there's, th- it's not happening in this way right now. He's, he's, but he's talking about the wrath of God in a way that we don't maybe recognize. The question is, what is, how is God's wrath being revealed? First, it's important to understand this idea that our idea of wrath is different than God's. Our idea of wrath is different than God's, and you kind of have to settle that. It's hard to imagine wrath that is perfect. It's hard to imagine sometimes a perfect parent. But here's what I want you to see. In the original Greek language, there are two words for wrath. One is thermos. That's where we get the word thermometer, right? And it literally means a blast of anger, sudden temper, explosive anger. But that's not what the Apostle Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the second word, which is the Greek word orge, which literally means controlled anger. In other words, it's settled. It's not impulsive. Now, I have many times been impulsive as a parent. There are a few times that I've lost control when I've been so mad. One of my favorite... Babe, can I tell your story? Okay. See what I did there? She couldn't say no. (laughs) I didn't ask her, which usually I do, but I just thought of it on the spot. I think it's so funny. She was so mad at at Taylor and Zachary when they were little. I think they were outside. This is they they were just they were just talking back all the time. They were pushing back all the time. And then she saw them. She found them in the yard, and Zachary had Taylor's head and was slamming it into the yard over and over and over and over again. And she comes out there. She's so mad. She's like, what is wrong with you boys? Get upstairs right now or I'm going to spank the crap out of you. It's a very famous phrase in our house because <laughs> it's so descriptive. She has repented long ago and they've forgiven her. I think the story is only funny if you hear it coming out of Amy's mouth. It's not funny if it comes out of my mouth. So this may be a new concept for you that God gets angry, but what you have to understand is even though God gets angry, he never loses control. And the reason why God gets angry is because of sin. God gets angry at sin because the reason for this is because sin destroys life. What sin does to a person is so horrendous. The reason for this is sin destroys life. It twists life. In fact, the language that Paul is using has this underlying meaning of a twisted way of looking at life, a twisted approach to creation itself. He describes how sin twists everything until it is out of joint, broken. 
It damages what God has made. It destroys life instead of gives life. I want you to think about it this way. If you had a little girl and suddenly she got kidnapped, raped, killed, would you get angry about it? Of course you would. I hope you would. If not, there may be something already wrong with your soul. You certainly wouldn't be described as a a person who has love for your daughter. Of course, it would create anger. See, friends, God made this amazing world. He created it in perfection, but he sees it being wrecked. He sees it being being marred. He, He sees wars and hatred and violence and prejudice and tyranny and injustice, and it's not how God designed it. It's not the way it's supposed to be. That's what sin does. It wrecks what God's created. And the second thing you you and I have to understand about God's wrath is the object of wrath. Read verse 18 again. Check this out. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. God's wrath is revealed against godlessness and wickedness. Now, godlessness means living as if God doesn't exist. That's what godlessness is. And, and it's, not, it's not necessarily atheism, right? It doesn't even believe in the existence of God, right? It's not atheism. It doesn't mean you don't believe in God. Many people believe in God, but yet they don't live like he exists. They don't live in a way that acknowledges his existence. They, they don't think he makes any difference in their lives, so it doesn't matter. God's there, but it doesn't have anything to do with me. And they live as they think best, and they start to live very often with a warped mind and a darkened heart. That's godlessness. Wickedness, on the other hand, means living without any rules, living without any rules that apply to you. In other words, doing your own thing, being your own judge, it's selfishness on steroids. It's do unto others before they do to you. And this comes from a thinking, a way of thinking. Get all you can while you can. No one else is going to look out for you, so you've got to look out for yourself, and you take what you want regardless of the cost, regardless of the price to anyone else. That's wickedness. And so here's the thing about it. Godlessness is a sin against God. And wickedness is a sin against man. Godlessness is a sin against God that that he even exists, and wickedness is a a sin against man. If you think about this courtroom scene that Paul is describing, he's saying man is guilty. He's guilty on all counts of godlessness and guilty on all counts of wickedness. And then the next five verses, the apostle Paul begins to argue the evidence of why mankind is guilty of godlessness. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. 
Now, I want you to see what Paul is arguing here. Three things. He's, he's providing his evidence. God has revealed himself to man in three ways. He says, exhibit A, it is unmistakable. Exhibit A, unmistakable. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. It's plain to see is what Paul is saying. He's, he's talking here about nature and creation. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Have you ever heard people say, I feel so close to God when I'm in nature? That's a real thing. That's a real deal. I'm from Colorado, and the mountains are beautiful. And people all the time are like, man, I go up to the mountains, and I feel so close to God. Of course, there's a little extra thing there. And so it's like, it's, it gets a little gets a little messed up but but they're like i feel so close to god it's like he's just here and the truth is i think they are i think god is trying to reveal himself it's unmistakable god's revealing himself through nature and if you remember john glenn he was an astronaut he orbited the earth he what he said when he orbited the earth it was before <laughs> it was a long time ago so most of you are like, who? But, but, but here's what he said. John Glenn, February 20th, 1962, he orbited the earth three times. It was one of the first times it had ever happened. And the first thing he said when he came back down was, I saw God everywhere. I saw his glory. I felt his presence, his closeness. I saw his majesty. That's what John Glenn said. See, God is revealed in nature. It's unmistakable. That's exhibit A. Exhibit B is it's universal. For since creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. See one chapel, the Apostle Paul says the evidence here is overwhelming. If you're in Europe, if you're in Africa, if you're in Asia, if you're in America, whether you're educated or undereducated, everybody can look up and see the same stars. The whole world is around them. It's obvious, unmistakable, universal. You don't have to be an American to find God. In fact, some would argue it's harder and harder to find him here. That's why the Apostle Paul says that God made himself known to everyone. It's universal. And then exhibit C, it's undeniable. It's undeniable. Verse 20, it's this, this is Paul's argument, all right? I'm giving you Paul's argument. He says in verse 20, so that men are without excuse. Paul says we don't have a defense. It's an airtight case. The evidence is overwhelming. It's undeniable. The New English Bible says it this way. There is no possible defense for their conduct. But I can already hear the wheels turning in your mind. You're already ahead of me. And you're thinking to yourself, but what about the aborigines who never heard about God? What about the people who are in unreached people groups who've never even had the Bible? They don't have the scriptures. What about these people? Well, the answer is, that's true. They may not have a full understanding of God. But the Apostle Paul is saying here that every human being is without excuse because, at least because of creation, if man is left alone, he will come to the conclusion that there must be a creator. Did you know that archaeologists have never found a civilization of atheists. They've never found a civilization of atheists. Although the religion may be distorted in some way, 
um, and way off from truth, right? It, but archaeologists say they can find cities without walls. They can find cities without buildings. They can find cities without public areas, but you'll never find a city with some, without some kind of temple or worship area. I, I think it's a natural desire. I think the way I read the scriptures, I see it. God put it in us to worship we are made to be worshipers. We're wired up for it. He made us that way. Verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. God is revealing Himself. And we may not want to admit it. Because it kind of makes, it makes us accountable then. If you admit that, if you concede that point, you're, you're admitting that there's an accountability that is required. Because here's the problem with most of us in the Western world and our Americanized sort of intellectual approach to everything. We can't conceive with our brilliant and yet finite minds. We can't possibly conceive of a way that God could, ev could reveal himself in other ways to a person or to a people group through his creation or through his voice or through his goodness. We can't, we're like, Oh, no, that couldn't happen. Hey, can could I, could I remind you of something? You do realize that throughout most of our human history, God was revealing himself without the aid of the scriptures. You do realize this, right? He was revealing himself to people. How was he revealing it? Well, we have a record of some of them through visions, dreams, angelic visitations, burning bushes, <laughs> prophetic pictures, theophanies, finally through Jesus, the Messiah himself. God's revealing himself. This is what he does over and over and over again. And I, right now, there are reports all through the Middle East. One of the most common experiences people are having is they're having dreams about Jesus. That's true. That's recorded. So the reality is, you have to understand this passage is Roman, in Romans is laying the groundwork through the evidence that sin twists our minds and darkens our hearts so that we mistreat, misunderstand, and misdiagnose how life should be lived. God is, God is revealing himself, but we're, and we're guilty of all accounts of godlessness. Because when you repress, reject, or replace God, it automatically causes all kinds of problems in our world. See, when your vertical relationship is not right, your horizontal relationships won't be right either. And something happens. In other words, godlessness, check this out, godlessness leads to wickedness. That's what happens. You act as if there is no God and it leads you to violate others. Living as if God does not exist leads to the violation of others and the, and the abuse of creation. Which means godlessness is the root and wickedness is the fruit. So whenever I live like there's no God, it's going to cause problems in my life and it's going to be destructive for the people around me. And in, in the next several verses, the Apostle Paul discloses the evidence for mankind's wickedness all the way through it. He's talking about, he's using illustrations and examples that teach us that when, in verse 24, he says, Therefore God gave them over to sinful desires of their heart. There's that gave them over again. But you have to see, we'll talk about that in just a second. You have to see that verse 26, it says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, their own desires. And when you, when you allow the lust that is in your heart to have total freedom, 
it never ends. That's the nature of lust. It can never get enough. It can never be satisfied. So you must keep satisfying the lust and desires of your own heart. And it comes out in all kinds of new ways. It comes out in all kinds of things that you begin to to need, want, want to control, violate, abuse, that will satisfy that lust. And so unchecked, all that will go everywhere. It'll go off in all kinds of directions. That's how Paul is describing this big picture of God's created world. Don't drill down on it. Don't drill down on this passage with the individual lens of American Christianity and the political landscape and start using it as a some kind of um, uh, way that we describe sinfulness. See, there, there's, a, there's a different thing happening here with Paul, what Paul is saying, because he's saying when you use creation as the object of your worship, there is no end to the violation. It doesn't make any sense. You can't stop it. The idolatry becomes what we want. And we begin to have our way in every way, letting lust take over our, our, our hearts, letting uh, the blindness take over our minds. Verse 28 uh, says, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. Now let's deal with this thing God gave them over. What does that mean? What does it mean to get, when God says he gives somebody over? First, let me tell you what it doesn't mean, right? Number one, it doesn't mean that these people can't be saved, rescued, or receive salvation. It doesn't mean that. It does not mean there's no hope for them. It does not mean that God quits loving them. Let me explain it this way. Let's say you have a 19-year-old teenage son. And, and he's really making a mess of his life. And he, he's into cocaine and all kinds of drugs. And he, he routinely comes home drunk and vomits on your living room floor. Right? He's living a wild, crazy life. And there's no morality to it. And so you come to your son one day and you say, all right, you're 19. You're past the, the legal age of 18. I can't run your life anymore, really. I can't tell you exactly what you should do. But if you're going to continue to stay at home, you've got to realize the rules of the house are for your own good and for the other inhabitants of the house. And so if you're going to live here and you can't follow the rules, you're going to have to move out. And you're not going to wreck our lives as well as your own. And so your son walks out. Now what's going on here? You're, you're giving him over to the lifestyle that he wants to live without any, you're not inhibiting it in any way. You're allowing for it. Do you want to do it? No. Are you glad to do it? Absolutely not. It's one of the most heartbreaking things I think any parent has to say but you've given him a free choice. He's old enough to make choices on his own, so you give him over to the choices. That's what this word means. That's what this phrase means. God does the same thing with us. It simply means that God allows us, here's your fill in the blank, to reap the results of our own choices. He allows us to reap the results of our own choices. 
and he lets you have what you think you want. You asked for it, and now you've got it, which means you can go out and make a mess of your life, and God won't stop you. The reason is because you've got a free will, and you can do what you'd like to do. He won't stop you. You can, you can have freedom to ruin your life. And so when verse 18 says the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness, he's, he's saying God's allowing you to do your own thing. And when you reap the results of that, of doing your own thing, that's the wrath of God. That's the love of God being expressed in a way that is so perfect that he's going to allow you to run into your need. Somewhere along the way, somewhere along the line. But that's what's being poured out. And listen, if you look around at our culture, the wrath of God, you can see it everywhere, right? Brokenness. Broken homes, shattered lives, violence, racism, slavery, tyranny, all sorts of sickness and diseases. When we get ourselves in a mess and God doesn't bail us out, when we reap what we sow, when we insist on it, that's the wrath of God. Letting us have what we really want. This is why God doesn't have to send fire and brimstone on us. He never wants to do that. He never wanted to. Because the effects of living without God bring its own problems and destruction. God punishes us with our own sin. That's his wrath. Look at, look at the logical conclusion of this topic with Paul at the end of the chapter, and then we'll end. Verse 29 through 32 says, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Think of that. They don't just do it, they approve it of those who practice them. They start to agree with it. It's like meeting two guys in prison and one guy says, I know I shouldn't have done it. I was just so angry. I couldn't stand it. I got so angry and I, and I did this terrible thing and I took, took that man's life and I realized how wicked it is and how terrible it is. Then the second guy says, you're such a wimp. The other, the other guy who's in prison, he says, you're such a wimp. We live in a rough old world. Who cares about right and wrong? I did this sensible thing when I killed that stupid old man. He was a waste of space. The world is better off without him. Those who, who the, judge, the, the judge should have given me a medal instead of locking me up. Okay, here's the question. Whose world do you want to live in? The first guy or the second guy? Because we all have to choose. The final thing I want you to read, I want you to hear, is I'm going to read one of the impact statements of one of the girls who was violated by Dr. Ner Larry Nasser. And it, these are the words of Rachel Denhollander. And they were shared a little over a week ago to the court of how Dr. Nasser abused her. She was the first one. Rachel was the first one to publicly make allegations against Dr. Larry Nasser for sexual abuse back in 2016. And she was the last person of over 150 girls and women to share her impact statement to the court. Here it is. 
In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. She says this to Dr. Larry Nasser. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you've done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it better for a stone. It would be better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and for you to be thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak of carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. I can't wrap up this problem, tie it in a little bow, and move on down the road. You and I have to let this settle on us. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And I want the band to come, and we're just going to come to the Lord's table as a final act. And it's an appropriate act. But I don't want you to move too quickly. I don't want you to move too quickly from this place of repentance. Because I think... If we would be honest with ourselves, I think every one of us would admit that there are areas in our own lives where we're living as if there is a God that doesn't exist. And many of us are experiencing the effects of God giving you over to the consequences of your sin. This is why Jesus came. He's the one who wants to offer something to you, but listen, I can't, I can't offer absolution to what's going on. In your secret life, only Jesus can do that. So I need Jesus. You might have a secret that you've had a hard time opening up about. You might have a habitual sin that keeps tripping you up. Would you allow the weightiness of this dialogue, what, what the Apostle Paul is laying out here before us, to settle on you and me? Would you allow the weightiness of our, your own guilt to just settle there for a moment? don't want to deny the grace of God that we love and that we've sung about but here's the problem if we don't let repentance work deeply into us we just keep doing the same things over and over and over and over 
if we don't let the ramifications of what we dabble with, if we don't, if we don't see how opposite it is to God's design, if we don't embrace this idea that godlessness and wickedness can occur in our own hearts, it's really hard for us to repent well. We've had about 30 or 40 years of really good teaching on God's grace in American culture and American Christianity, but that's, that's because we have probably had about 50 to 100 years of real harsh, judgmental <laughs> hell, fire, and brimstone, and we're trying to balance it out. But the truth is there's tension here because justice and mercy are both required. And only Jesus can show us how to walk through that. As we come to this table, what it says is that God's justice required something. And Jesus was willing to stand in our place, to let his body be taken, broken for our healing, let his blood be spilled for our forgiveness. And, and we come to this table, and this is the place where we understand, we stand in that middle place between justice and mercy. <laughs> and it flows into our lives. Would you do that today? Would you come to this table? I want to pray over you before we do. And I want you to pray this prayer in your heart. I'll lead you, God, today. I realize my own guilt. I recognize my own godlessness. I recognize my own wickedness. And so today I repent. I repent for trying to live my life without you. I repent for living my life as if you don't exist, as if you don't matter. I repent for my wickedness, my godlessness. I repent for doing my own thing. I repent for being my own judge. I repent of my selfishness. And so I ask you to forgive me for my godlessness. I ask you to forgive me for my wickedness. I recognize that I'm guilty on all of these accounts. And so I reach out to you and I ask you for forgiveness. Jesus, come in. Cleanse my life. Change me. Help me to take responsibility for the damage that I have done. And help me to move forward. To make amends where that is appropriate and right. To walk down the path that you have for my life. I say yes to you, Jesus. Take charge. Jesus' name.